safe mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, and mushrooms that'll have you spending 24 hours on the porcelain throne. This week, it's all about foraging for mushrooms. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the show where we explore the food of the world. And this week we're in the woods searching for delicious and safe mushrooms with Frank Hyman. But first, let me tell you where I am. Pastelaria Capri is on Largo de Misericorda in Stubel, Portugal, the town where I live. And if you know anything about pastry shops in Portugal, you probably know about the famous tart called the Pastel de Nada. Well, Pastelaria Capri makes my favorite Pastel de Nada in all of Stubel. They have a mini version, which I think is way better than the full-size version. That's because the mini has a larger crust-to-filling ratio than the full-size version. And for me, that's what it's all about, because that flaky crust is so, so good. That's what makes the Pastel Donata. And the mini Pastel Donata, it's just 50 cents at Capri. My guest this week is Frank Hyman. Frank is the author of the informative and entertaining book, How to Forage for Mushrooms Without Dying. (laughs) It's a great title, and it's in its second printing now. And it's essential if you're hunting mushrooms for fun or just like learning about the natural world. Frank is also a multi-avocationist, meaning he has several different jobs and skills, including gardener, stonemason, teacher, and sculptor. In other words, a super interesting guy and the perfect person to have on the show. We talk about foraging for mushrooms, the etiquette and law of hunting mushrooms on public and private land, and how to make sure you don't poison yourself and your family along the way. And we also talk about psychedelic mushrooms, and I try to rehab the image of the lowly button mushroom. Okay, I'm starving for some fungi, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Frank, thanks for being on Destination Eat Drink. Congratulations on your book, How to Forage for Mushrooms Without Dying. Your second printing is out now, so it's good for you to have a successful book. Um, To me, mushrooms, uh, I wrote a book on truffles. I think these are kind of cut from the same cloth, and I also look at both these topics as kind of esoteric. So the question is, how did you initially get interested in a topic like mushrooms? Yeah, I, uh, like many people, I was just barely aware of them as something in the woods. And uh, about a dozen years ago, my wife and I were visiting family in Maine, uh, the state of Maine. And there was, we always checked the local papers for things to do. And there was a a note, a notice about a mushroom walk in the woods. So we're like, yeah, let's go do that. It'll be outdoors. Sounds like fun. And so we go on this walk with these people and learn, you know, three or four edible mushrooms. And we came home and I remember thinking, man, this, this mushroom thing is interesting and fun. But I, I, I don't think I, I can't imagine how I could ever make a dime from this. And so that was because I was just not aware of how even then interest in mushrooms, edible, wild edible mushrooms among chefs and the general public was really exploding. 
And so since then, I, I got into the mushrooms, learned a little bit more, learned a little bit more, discovered that actually uh, learning some of the common mushrooms in North America is pretty e is much easier than you would think. And since then, I've been selling mushrooms to chefs, uh, teaching classes, writing columns, and uh, the columns uh, more or less turned into this book, which brings us to you and me sitting here talking. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. So you mentioned your first mushroom forage was done in Maine. I'm, I'm familiar with Maine. I lived in New England for many years, and there's a lot of woods up there. It's wet up there, so I imagine there's a lot of mushrooms. How is mushroom foraging in the... Uh, in the triangle in North Carolina where you live? It's pretty good. It's uh, to, to kind of, it's, so it's good. It's probably comparable to Maine because we have, even though the, the season is longer and warmer, the further North you go, obviously it's kind of a similar amount of rainfall, which is one of the main factors influencing the availability of mushrooms, both the raw number of mushrooms and the number of species. So where it's rainier than Durham up in the mountains, like towards Asheville, North Carolina, they get many more mushrooms. And there's folks there who believe they see more mushrooms than even the folks in the rainy Pacific Northwest. But uh, to, to, if I can back up and give people a larger perspective about where they're gonna find mushrooms and also where the book is useful, uh, there's a general rule of thought among mushroom hunters internationally that in the temperate region of the northern hemisphere, all around the planet, so the U.S. and most of Canada, uh, Europe, and most of Asia, that you have a lot of the same mushrooms, partly because their spores blow around on the wind, but also with globalization going back to the colonial era, you know, mushrooms that were common in Europe would be in the guts, the spores would be in the guts of the horses and cows and other animals or be in the hay that they would bring on the ships with them. And so mushrooms, mushrooms in the temperate region of the Northern Hemisphere are pretty much the same. And uh, the uh, availability of them, the quantity of them is going to be influenced by rainfall. So the more rain you have, the more mushrooms you get, the less rain you have, like in the desert Southwest, then the fewer mushrooms you'll have. But uh, pretty much there'll be uh, a lot of the same species of mushrooms. So you're saying if I went into the woods here in Portugal, if I went up into the mountains and I went hunting in the woods, I might find the same kinds of mushrooms here that you would find in North Carolina. Yes, not exactly the same. The species. Uh, Species might be different. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, uh, an example of this. So like with uh, chickens, I mean, they're all, you know, your backyard chicken, they're all the same. Mostly they're the same species, but they might be a different looking variety. And so sometimes among mushrooms, you might find the same species you know, on different continents, but it's a diff slightly different variety or the species might be different, but the genus is the same and the edibility is, or not is the same. So yeah, I've been hunt, hunting mushrooms in the south of France and in central Italy and have seen and eaten a lot of the same mushrooms, have seen and not eaten a lot of the same poisonous mushrooms. <laughs> and so there is, there is a lot of similarity. I would say that a person who has learned mushrooms in one country uh, so, so on one continent, say on North America, that when you are in Europe or in Asia, 
while many of the mushrooms will look the same to you, it's still worthwhile to connect with some local expertise just to be on the doubly safe side that you're not biting down on something that's going to bite back. <laughs> okay. Is that the saying that uh, it might bite back at you? Because I, I had a friend, I have a friend who's a, um, who's a forager. She's a naturalist in the Smoky Mountains. And she told me a saying, there are bold mushroom hunters and there are old mushroom hunters, but there are no bold and old mushroom hunters. Um, is, is this a philosophy that you can get on board with? I have heard that since the beginning of my mushroom hunting days over a dozen years ago. And yes, I, I aspire to be an old mushroom hunter. <laughs> Therefore, I forego the many opportunities to be the bold mushroom hunter. And uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because when when people do get sick or die from eating mushrooms, it's it's rare, but it can happen. It's, uh, it's often due to the boldness and... Uh, by and large, the bolder mushroom hunters, in a sense, are going to be guys, men, because <laughs> women, whether it's biological or cultural, they have a much greater tendency to play it on the safe side, which when it comes to mushrooms is the side you want to be on. And all the stories I've heard firsthand or read about secondhand about somebody uh, eating mushrooms and sharing mushrooms that make somebody sick or potentially kill them the perpetrator is always a guy. The bold mushroom hunter is always a man. So just a warning to you fellas out there and a warning to you uh, ladies who have uh, uh, men mushroom hunters in your social circle that if they have a, if that individual has a reputation for doing sloppy work or being careless, you might want to pass up invitations to eat mushrooms that they have gathered, to be honest. So this sounds like this is the mushroom hunting equivalent of hold my beer, um, you know. Yes, yes. Or, or as we say in the South, hey, y'all, watch this. Yeah. <laughs> Which is immediately followed by some some crap getting blown up or catching on fire or something like that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of catching on fire here in the South. But uh, yeah, that's it's the same phenomenon. Really, it is, is that... Uh, this desire to be seen as the hero, the wonderful, smart person, and instead of you know being careful and saying, well, hey, I'm 99% sure about this mushroom ID, therefore I should not eat it. I should you know double check my work as they, you know, check your work as your teachers said in school. And so instead of checking their work, they just announce like, oh, I'm this brilliant forager and I have this wonderful mushroom, let's all eat it. And uh, a friend of mine told me this, his experience that he, he even had a mushroom ID book. He thought he had found chanterelles. He gathered some up. He goes to see a buddy of his who's a chef. And people would like to think all the chefs know the mushrooms, but they do not. There's a minority who do, but mostly they don't. And his chef buddy sees the mushrooms and says, hey, sell me those mushrooms and I'll serve them to my diners tonight. Oh, geez. And my buddy says, no, no, I'm taking these mushrooms home and going to cook a romantic dinner for my wife. Mm. He does that. He cooks a dinner for his wife. It's romantic. The mushrooms are delicious. And they spend the next 24 hours romantically hugging the toilet together <laughs> because they were not chanterelles. They were a variety called jack-o'-lanterns, which side by side do not look at all like chanterelles. Oh, in all honesty. Okay. But 
when you don't have much experience and you're going by some photos in a book, that, that kind of thing can happen. That's one of the most common mistakes that novice mushroom hunters make is eating jack-o'-lanterns, which, which won't kill you, but it'll make you, uh, the technical term is gastrointestinal distress, <laughs> which means stuff is coming out of you rapidly out of both ends. Oh, God. Okay. And yeah, right. Not what you want. And in my experience in looking at the mushroom books that were out there, a lot of the people getting sick had mushroom ID books. And I'm, and the phenomenon I recognize, because I have 30 or 40 mushroom ID books by all the experts, all the pros, and what uh, some of them are very, very good. Some of them are not quite as good because they would have a photo of the mushroom and they would have a written description of the mushroom, but the written description did not always include the two or three or four specific ID characteristics that gave you a yes or no is this mushroom the one you think it is or not? They would have some vague description of the mushroom that didn't didn't help you separate the wheat from the chaff. Hmm. So like, and so what I rec realized was that a lot of these mushroom books, well, pretty much all of them are written by mycologists with a degree in mycology, which is a great thing, but it would lead them, they would get to the position oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes they would forget how to be in what I, what's called beginner's mind. So they would not be writing the book for a beginner. They would be writing the book for their colleagues in the mycology, academic mycology community, which is a great thing. I use these books, but for a beginner, they sometimes take certain things for granted. And I think one of my strong suits in all my endeavors is I'm comfortable getting in the beginner's mind in order for me to learn that field. And then once I'm in it, I can still go back to beginner's mind and understand what the beginners need to know. I'm not taking anything for granted. And so in my book, each of the mushrooms that are listed in there have, specific, have a specific checklist. And so if you think you have a chanterelle, you look at the chanterelle pages, you look at the checklist and there's four things on there. And if it has all four things, one, two, three, four, boom, you are good to go. It is a chanterelle. If it only has three of those things or only two of those things, then clearly it's not a chanterelle. We've separated the wheat from the chaff. You will be safe. You will live a million years without, <laughs> or at least you will live a million years, but you will not die or puke your guts out from mushrooms because the checklist makes it that clear. And that's one of the things that I really like about your book. Are, are there any universal telltale signs that mushrooms are safe or toxic? I mean, we, we, we've got the Alice in Wonderland vision of red mushrooms with spots on them and stuff like that. But if I'm walking in the forest, is there anything that I should look for and say, okay, I, I don't know what kind of mushroom that is, but I know stay away from that automatically because of X, Y, Z. Yeah, I wish it was that simple, but it's not that simple. It's uh, one person, uh, one mushroom hunter related. He's, they said that to learn the mushrooms is like learning the names of individuals. You have to be introduced to that person. If you want to know who Brent is, you have to be introduced to Brent. And Brent looks this way and spells his name this way. You got all these details so that you're, nobody mistakes you for somebody else. And mushrooms are that way also. It's like they're individual species. They have a specific look. 
they have specific qualities and you have to learn those you need to learn those that checklist for mushroom a and the checklist for mushroom b and the checklist for mushroom c now that being said i do have some general advice for novices about mushrooms some uh, mushroom uh, characteristics that if they avoid all the mushrooms that have these characteristics that helps them to stay away from poisonous mushrooms and keeps them from spending time trying to identify a mushroom they can't eat, but it also will exclude some edible mushrooms. But when you're a novice, that's the best way to start. And I'll just give you one example is that uh, there's a family of mushrooms. The genus is called Amanita and some of them are edible. And one of them is my favorite mushroom, but we're not gonna talk about that because this is for beginners and the book is for beginners but the Amanitas have some of the most poisonous, deadly mushrooms on the mm. planet. Okay. And the things that Amanitas have in common is that they all have a little, so they all grow from the ground and they have a cap, but they also have a little, what's called a skirt or a ring around the stalk. I call it a tutu just because <laughs> I think that is a little more memorable. Sure. Uh, so, so if you find a mushroom, you're wondering if it's edible, it smells really good. It makes you want to eat it. And you notice it has a little tutu around the stalk. If you're a beginner, you're out there by yourself, I would just leave that mushroom alone. So that's just one example uh, of uh, some of the advice I give. But there are some edible, delicious mushrooms that also have tutus. But, uh, that's, uh, but learning to, to differentiate them is more of a job for the intermediate mushroom hunter. And so for beginners, if it has a tutu, that's a no-no, and move on to the look for the next bunch of mushrooms. In your book, Frank, you focus on 29 mushroom species. If we're wandering around the neighborhood, what are the ones that we're most likely to encounter? What are the most common ones that are edible that we might see? Well, let me, I'll mention several. I've already mentioned chanterelles. Mm -hmm. Those are very common. In fact, my neighbors across the street have chanterelles that come up every summer in their lawn. Uh, and, and I'm in a neighborhood uh, just a stone's throw from the downtown of Durham. So an older neighborhood from the 1920s, we have big oak trees and big mature oak trees is a very good sign that you probably will have some mushrooms, edible mushrooms. So chanterelles are a common one, even in town even in your own yard, puffballs are another very common one that people will find in their yard sometimes. In fact, I've seen them in people's front yard and I'll stop and knock on some stranger's door and say, hey, I collect <laughs> mushrooms. Can I have these mushrooms in your yard? And they will look at me and have this horrible expression on their face and say, yes, please take them all. They're so disgusted by mushrooms and I just scoop them up. But so puffballs are the ones uh, I bet almost all of your listeners are familiar with puffballs. If as a kid, they kicked a mushroom oh, okay. and it exploded and all this dust comes out of it. Right. I remember that so, in the seventies. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Those are puffballs. I, my belief is that puffball mushrooms co-evolved with human children relying <laughs> the way that the way that flowers rely on butterflies to distribute the pollen the puffballs relied on human children to kick them hard and spread the spores widely. <laughs> That's my theory. It's backed up by no scientific evidence whatsoever, but I dare anyone to prove me, try and prove me wrong. I don't think they could. And I think Michael Pollan will probably put that in his next book. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yes. So 
Uh, but the caveat here is that when a puffball has all that dust, those spores inside it, they are too old to eat. And so if you find puffballs in your yard, then uh, the thing to do, and, and these are one of the easiest mushrooms for novices, for beginners, is that you just take your knife, because every mushroom hunter is carrying their pocket knife with them, unless you were getting on a plane at the airport. But so you take your pocket knife, you slice it in half, and the if it's an immature puffball, it will be solid white inside. It'll be solid white the way a marshmallow or a block of tofu are solid white. There's no other color. There's no shapes or lines or anything weird inside. It's just solid white like tofu. You have a puffball. Now we don't. We that's not enough information to tell you which species because I actually talk about uh, many species of puffballs in the book, but all of them are similar in that you cut the immature. You cut it in half. If it's immature enough to eat, it'll just be solid white like a marshmallow on the inside. So that's a very easy one. That's that's essentially the one checklist item that's necessary to identify puffballs, because if there's anything else going on, you just don't want to eat it. You bring up an interesting point here, Frank, about going to your neighbor and knocking on the door and saying, can I take those mushrooms that are growing in your yard? And that's the question of what is the etiquette of mushroom hunting? Because a lot of times you're going on land, it could be public land, it could be private land, it could be in an urban area, it could be in a rural area. What is actually the etiquette of going and picking mushrooms, taking a, a species that uh, from that land on a spot that uh, does not belong to you? Good question. So obviously, if it's your land and you own some woods, you are in high cotton and you can just run wild. If you have neighbors, people you're familiar with, and you tell them, hey, you know, I hunt mushrooms. If I see some in your yard, can I have them? And I'll share them with you. Uh, 98% of the time, they will say, yes, uh, you can have them, but you should keep them off because I hate mushrooms because a lot of people, strangely, do not like mushrooms. Uh, and if it's some stranger's uh, yard or their property or their farm, you know, definitely knock on the door if you see some mushrooms and ask for permission. Uh, as far as public land, like parks and forests and things like that, the, uh, the generally the rule on most public land is that they don't want you harvesting mushrooms. And so, of course, I'm not going to publicly advocate harvesting mushrooms on that type of public land. Although I will just make the observation that frequently when people are on public land and there's some, maybe some blackberries are ripe, people will eat them and it's not like the end of the world. Uh, and mushrooms kind of play a similar ecological role to blackberries or to apples. The part that we like to eat is functionally, it's technically, it's called the fruiting body. I just call it the fruit of the mushroom. So you can harvest every blackberry or harvest every apple in an apple orchard, but you will not have hurt the orchard. You will not have hurt the blackberry patch. Same thing with mushrooms. If uh, And 30 year long studies have been done in Switzerland, Germany, and Oregon. And they all came to the same conclusion that harvesting some, none or some or all of the edible mushrooms did not in any way hurt the mycelium, the body of the mushroom. 
uh, the fungus that's in the ground or in the tree. So although on public land, it may be against the rules to harvest mushrooms, it's just an interesting fact that like you won't be harm, harming the fungus by harvesting. If somebody inadvertently or uh, willy-nilly is harvesting some mushrooms on public land. So that's just one issue I wanted to bring out there. The other issue with public land is that in some places it is allowed to, to harvest mushrooms on public land, and that would be on uh, game land. So in North Carolina, the state has land set aside for hunting game, uh, deer, ducks, things like that, and they allow you to take mushrooms. Other public land would be national forests, which are different from national parks. National parks, they don't want you to harvest mushrooms or gather anything, but in national forests, you can harvest mushrooms. And in fact, that's where, where there's a big mushroom industry in Oregon. That's where a lot of the mushrooms are harvested is on national forest land on the West Coast. So it's, uh, um, and we have a private uh land preservation agency here the uh, or the uh, well it's actually national the land conservancy and they have a general policy of allowing people to harvest mushrooms but there's some local uh, policies there so you want to contact your local nature conservancy and you may need to get permission from them or a little permit or something it's uh, their policies vary from state to state. So it's, I don't have a blanket answer on public land on whether you can harvest or not. National forests, game lands, generally you can, but check your own local conditions, check with your local mushroom hunters. There may be a Facebook group or a meetup group and you can go on there and find people in your local area and get the scoop on what policies are, are in place in given pieces of public land and find out and also you could learn about people on private land who allow people to hunt for mushrooms. Frank, you mentioned that you had foraged for mushrooms in France and in Italy. Do you have any favorite foraging experiences that you've done away from home? Oh, yes. The, uh, I, I write about some of those in the book. The, uh, it isn't just an ID book. There are pages in the book that are orange, and those pages have essays about the foraging life. And in one of those essays, I tell a story about my wife and I foraging in Tuscany. We'd made some friends there uh, in the boondocks, so like non-tourist in Tuscany. And one of our friends knows a local mushroom hunter, an older gentleman uh, who had lost an eye due to a youthful chainsaw accident. So he's oh, a one-eyed mushroom hunter, which is, you know, if you can find a one-eyed mushroom hunter, you're doing well. <laughs> and he had he had grown up hunting mushrooms to help feed his family and was uh so he's retired now and likes to share he doesn't want to be paid he just wants to take people out show them how to find mushrooms we did his son came with us and his son had a little side gig going on of rescuing donkeys and so we gave him some money to pay for you know uh hay for the donkeys and they appreciated that Oh, good. So uh, even if you do find somebody, uh, if you find somebody who will take you mushroom hunting and they charge you money, that's a good thing. They're doing it to make a living. I applaud that. Often these folks do not charge enough for what you're getting. And so I recommend that when you find a mushroom hunter, you hire them. They show you a good time. You get some mushrooms. 
and they only want 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 50 bucks, just think about how much fun you've had, how much expensive gourmet food they've helped you find, and just give them a really big fat tip. Because even then, even after you've paid them their fee and a big fat tip, you will find that when you go back home, you have the most interesting stories at your dinner party about going foraging with these local people. And you will have forgotten how much money you spent because it will be the smallest expense <laughs> on your entire trip. So I just want to give people that perspective. So uh, the, the one-eyed guy took us foraging in an uh, ancient beechwood forest, so these massive beech trees and these massive moss-covered moss boulders. And each boulder is like the size of a house, just like sticking up out of the ground. Oh, cool. And so a really magical kind of a fairyland environment. And so there's a half a dozen of us and we have our baskets and we're gathering mushrooms. And I gathered a few that I thought would be edible. And he was like, no, no, no. And he's tossing them over, over his shoulder, getting rid of them. And so I was able to clarify some of my understanding about the local mushroom species that are edible. Uh, and uh, we got home and he gave my uh, wife and her friend uh, their what their recipe for making soup. They said they made a layer of onions and mushrooms and sauteed them and then added a layer of breadcrumbs and water and mushrooms and breadcrumbs and what. So this oh, made man. this amazing soup. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we had like seven different species of edible mushrooms, right, right. Uh, chanterelles, puff balls, coral mushrooms, lobsters, all, yeah, lots of beautiful, wonderful mushrooms. And then I did a little thing that I like to do, which I separate out you know, three or four or five species of mushrooms and cook each species in its own pan with butter, garlic, salt, parsley. So I had like five little pans going on the <laughs> cooker and uh, so that I was able to serve them in individual bowls. So it was like a, a buffet of five different mushroom species. So, which is very fun, especially for beginners because so you can try mushroom A and you might like its texture better than mushroom B, but you might like the flavor of mushroom B better. So there's all these little nuances of each mushroom. And since the, each one is cooked the same way, it's sort of like a scientific experiment. Mushroom you know, taste you, test. I it, like it. Mushroom taste test. Exactly. So it's just kind of fun to learn uh, the individual qualities of each mushroom and how they compare but it's also, I have found this to be a very good technique for converting people who think they are mushroom haters. Like, oh, Frank, I hate mushrooms. But then I give them this display and they figure, okay, I'll, this, one, this one looks appetizing. I'll take a tiny bit and I'll try it. And then they like it. And then the curiosity gets the better of them and they <laughs> want to try this other one. You know, the yellow one taste was kind of good. So let me try the reddish orange one. Now let me try the brown one. And so before you know it, so in, in this particular um, story, we had done that, had some other people over who swore they hated mushrooms. And at the end, one of the quote unquote mushroom haters leans over the table and says, oh, are there any more of the chanterelles left? <laughs> Convert. Convert, yes. You know, I think I should have tried this method. I might have converted my girlfriend uh, quicker than the several years that it took me to get her to love mushrooms. I think it was finally a mushroom risotto that uh, won her over. But I, I wanted to ask you a question specifically about uh, button mush, what are called button, white button mushrooms, because I'm old enough 
to remember the days when that was pretty much the only mushroom that you could find in the grocery store. Now you go in and, of course, there's bins of different kinds of mushrooms depending on where you go. But the button mushroom now seems to have kind of fallen down to the lowest level of, you know, kind of being dismissed as a as a good mushroom. Yeah. And I have to say, since I've been in Portugal, we go to the open market here and they sell several kinds of mushrooms and we get several different kinds, but they have big bins of fresh button mushrooms. And I'm, I've been buying yes. them recently and I've really, really been enjoying them. What is your opinion of button mushrooms? Where do they fall on the scale, Frank? Yeah, I'll, I'll eat. I'm one of those people. I'll eat any kind of mushroom. I like the texture and there is obviously variation in the texture between species, but there's something about that. I, what's, I don't know the right word. It's sponginess isn't the right word, but it's just, it's a, the texture of mushrooms is different than the texture of any kind of meat or fish or vegetable or fruit. And I like, when I'm eating, I like a variety of textures. Um, I enjoy flavors, but I'm also, uh, maybe I'm more into textures than some people. And I suspect that's what draws a lot of people into mushrooms is that texture is just kind of intriguing when it's in your mouth. And so we all grew up eating the button mushrooms, you know, raw at the salad bar or on a pizza. Yep. So I think now they are being seen as kind of like, oh, they're so boring because they're old and everything old is boring and only <laughs> new things are interesting, right? right? It's a simplistic way of looking at things that is unfortunately too popular. But uh, yeah, no, I still eat them. There's nothing uh, inferior about them, as your folks at the Portuguese market recognize. It's just, yeah, they were old standby. They were common because they were one of the first mushrooms that people figured out how to grow by farming them, that they could just sow the in Paris. They could just take, uh, you know, there's plenty of horse manure being dumped on the streets and somebody had to shovel it up. And what will we do with this horse manure? And somebody realized, man, I've seen these mushrooms growing up out of horse manure in the field. So let's take the horse manure we gather in the city streets. We'll put it in some bins in some cheap place like the uh, like the tunnels underneath Paris. And uh, because the mushrooms don't need the light. But this is cheap land. It's near where we're going to sell the mushrooms. So we don't have much uh, expense in terms of transportation. So they shovel up the horse poop. They put it in bins in the tunnels. They throw a few uh, button mushrooms on there and the spores take off and they're harvesting mushrooms and selling them to the wealthy people of Paris. <laughs> and from there, little do they know where they came from. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't, you don't mention that in your marketing materials. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, kind of a similar thing is going on in China with shiitake mushrooms, but they're growing those on the, uh, uh, the trunks of dead trees. Right, right. But uh, that's the beginning of farming mushrooms is these were the, the easy ones were the button mushrooms in Europe and the easy ones in Asia were shiitakes. And people learned as they went that some other mushrooms could be grown that could be farmed that way. And some mushrooms just simply could not. Uh, and so button mushrooms are there. There's nothing inferior about them. They're just a different flavor and texture. Uh, they're easy to grow. And so they will always be. Uh, probably will always be among the least ex less expensive mushrooms, certainly. But uh, but yeah, so which this discussion about farmed mushrooms brings us to an interesting point about why some mushrooms can be farmed and others can't. And the ones that can be farmed, all of them that can be farmed, so the button mushrooms, the shiitakes, the oysters, things like that, 
can be farmed because they belong to a group of mushrooms that I call eaters of the dead. Now, if you speak Latin, you can call them a saprobe uh, and other terms, but I find I try to use Latin as little as possible, especially with beginners. And so I coined the phrase eaters of the dead to describe those. So there, the mycelia of those mushrooms is breaking down organic matter. So horse poop is just full of organic matter from the grass that was the live grass that was eaten and killed and decomposed. Shiitake is living off of the dead wood of the trees. Same thing with oysters and others. They're living off of dead organic matter. And so they're eaters of the dead and therefore you can farm them. Uh, other mushrooms that people would love to be able to farm are chanterelles and morels, for instance, but those are not eaters of the dead. They are what uh, another group of mushrooms that I call the marrying kind, meaning they are not there. The mycelium underground is not decomposing organic matter. They are collaborating with tree roots. And so the mushroom, the chanterelle and the morel, their mycelium is in the soil, extracting nutrients and sharing it with the roots of the trees. And the trees are bartering back sugars that they have created through photosynthesis. So the mushrooms get something they can't make, which is the, the sugars from photosynthesis, and the trees get something they can't extract from the soil, which is some of the nutrients that mushrooms can extract. So they collaborate. So it's like a good marriage and they are the marrying kind and no one has yet figured out how to grow those on a farm. So those for the time being and for the foreseeable future will be probably more expensive because somebody has to take the time to go out in the woods and build up their knowledge base of mushrooms and gather them by hand and then bring them back to sell them at the farmer's market or sell them to the chef. That's why my buddy in Massachusetts is so excited when he comes across a morel mushroom because they can't be commercially, uh, commercially uh, harvested. Correct. Frank, before I let you go, I, I did... Again, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Um, so I want to ask you, what about psychedelic mushrooms? Where do these fall uh, when, we, when we talk about mushrooms? So the psychedelic mushrooms like psilocybin, they are eaters of the dead. And if you've harvested them, you understand that because you find them in pastures where they're growing on cow flop and or cow patties, cow manure, horse manure. Okay. It won't surprise me if they become more common and legally used for therapeutic purposes. Some colleagues of mine, South Carolina, they teach mushroom hunting. They uh, sell you spores of different mushrooms. They sell mushrooms. They also have a little side business in Jamaica, helping people with doing like micro doses, therapeutic doses of psilocybin. And so the, uh, I, there's a lot of speculation about why mushrooms would have chemicals that would have this effect on people. Obviously, uh, we've all heard about people having a bad trip, which is less to do with the person and more to do with the dosage. So a bad trip on any kind of pharmaceuticals, legal or otherwise, is about the dosage. You've taken way too much for your body size or your metabolism. And so some of the thinking about psilocybin is that the mushrooms evolve these chemicals because mammals who would eat them would have a bad trip and then stay away from them. And therefore the mushrooms would be free to fully mature and send their spores out into the world. That's one theory. The other theory is that 
psilocybin mushrooms slowly evolved these particular chemicals because somehow it helped them spread their spores because mammals would eat them in order to enjoy a trip and huh. swallow the spores and poop them out sure and spread them so nobody has really done enough of a study to conclusively say what's going on because here's an interesting uh, notion that uh, if we have questions about beef or chicken or vegetables or fruits about their evolution and their chemical makeup, et cetera, we can often answer those questions because those, those food industries, the beef and dairy and vegetable and fruit industries have spent a lot of money for scientists at universities to study these things and answer our questions. But the mushroom industry, such as it is, does not have the big bucks to invest in lots of studies to answer all of our questions. So when it comes to mushrooms, even if you have a room full of mycologists with decades of experience, you don't have to ask very many questions until you get to a point where they have to say, we just don't know. There's a lot of questions that the funding has not been there to answer. And so why does psilocybin have these particular chem uh, uh, chemicals, therapeutic chemicals, they're not really certain about that. There's some theories. But uh, if the but psilocybin, if taken in a small enough dose, is not a danger to most people unless you have some kind of, you know, uh, allergy to that kind of uh, chemical. And so I think we're just going to see a lot more therapeutic use of psilocybin. And uh, so I anticipate that that's going to be more common. I will also mention that often I've been to bookstores and when I go to look for their mushroom section, there are few or no mushroom ID books, but there are plenty of psilocybin books about <laughs> how to grow them and identify them and, right. and how to have a good trip. Yada, yada, yada. There'll be four or five different psilocybin books and maybe one or two edible mushroom ID books. So it's a interesting commentary on what booksellers think the market is like right now. But, uh, but I think that's going to change in the um, coming decades. Frank Hyman, your book is How to Forage for Mushrooms Without Dying. It's a great uh, read just at home, and it's also an essential companion if you're planning on going out in the forest or in your neighborhood to look for mushrooms. Frank, it's been great talking to you. It's been interesting and entertaining and enlightening, and I thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Brent. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Okay, there you go. Didn't think I'd talk about psilocybin mushrooms on the podcast, but when you've got a mushroom expert on, it's time for that question. Frank's book is in its second printing, and I've got a link to where you can buy it at Frank's website and in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED175. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we're in Bolivia, so don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about why you shouldn't book the cheapest ticket. Read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. It's been great hanging here at Capri. I'm now three mini pastel donatas in, and I'm not showing any signs of slowing down. Let's see how far I make it. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy whose mushrooms never have a tutu, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 